how ambitious should we be? Another version of this question is, what is the difference between ambition and delusion? Could I write a poem that is so good it lasts forever? Well, I think maybe the only way to actually end up doing that is to work under the assumption that yes, I could. But then doesn't that cast me as a kind of crazy lunatic? I think we sell ourselves short if we don't, you know, believe that we can achieve our dreams or believe that we can achieve things that may seem crazy. A lot of things that maybe you don't think are possible can be possible. Is there an upper limit to that? I mean, maybe there's no upper limit. That's where we come back to the importance of this pairing of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, that we need to take this visionary aspect of Don Quixote and tether it to reality with like Sancho. Like you can't be so visionary that we Mm -hmm. lose touch with real people, that they can't understand us, that they can't see things in our same realm where we are not seeing things accurately. But it's so important that we are able to have both. Don Quixote is somebody who he's a dreamer. He sees things greater than they actually are. And we need people to see us as larger and greater so that we can see that it's possible for ourselves to be like that. We need people around us like that. Hello, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Brooklyn and Riley about some excerpts from Cervantes' novel Don Quixote. I want to start with a very short quote from Cervantes himself, who writes, In order to attain the impossible, one must attempt the absurd. This, of course, is a great description of the hero of Cervantes' novel, but I like this quote a lot because it reminds us that if we'd ever want to accomplish something great, in any sphere of life, in our jobs or our families or our friendships, we have to be ambitious. I think we so often underestimate our own potential and sell ourselves short. I think we have no idea exactly how much we can accomplish. And if we have ambitions that are so high that they seem absurd, we might not achieve them exactly. But even in failing to achieve the absurd, we will have achieved something far, far greater than we ever thought possible. And for more about this and many other topics, let's go into that chat with me and Brooklyn and Riley. Hi, Brooklyn. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Hello, Riley. How are you? Hi, good. How are you guys? I'm doing well. Um, We don't have a lot of time. This is kind of a maddening, you know, we did five podcasts for King Lear. This book, I mean, the excerpts from it are not very long that I'm having you read. The book, though, could be, I don't know, 50 times longer than King Lear. We're only doing one recording for it. So I hope that what's about to happen doesn't feel like too much of a mad, insane rush. You know, I, I don't want it to seem like that. But on the other hand, we do have kind of a lot to cover. This novel was published in 1605, and it was published in two parts. The first part was published in 1605. Part two was published in 1613. It's it's often called the first novel. There are these ancient Roman novels, you know, by Petronius and others that maybe count as novels, narrative stories, not in poetry. So maybe there are older precedents for this. And of course, you know, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey have novelistic elements to them, but they're in lines of poetry. So this maybe has rightful claim on being the first novel. And I think we should start spending 60 seconds talking about what a novel is 
And what Don Quixote invents? I say Don Quixote. What does what does Cervantes invent with this text that really gets the ball rolling with the next 500 years of novels? Because novels really after this start to come into this like enormous bloom that hasn't really faded. What ingredients do you see Cervantes here? How is this a blueprint for the novel form? I guess is a question. One thing that I really loved about Don Quixote and the fact that it's so old, I was like, wow, old books can do this too, I guess, is that he is just like so ordinary. Mm. He's not this like grand knight who goes on these quests who we can't relate to. He's not Achilles or something. And like Achilles is relatable too, but he's just so far removed from yeah. me. And Don Quixote is just this old man who likes to read books. And he's like, you know, I kind of want to be one of those guys yeah. in this book. And I'm like, I can relate to that. I read books and I kind of want to be some of the characters in the books I read. And it just kind of has this aspect of humanity that I haven't really seen in a lot of older texts. It just brings you from like this ordinary person really starting their own journey and it's imperfect. That's great. It, so we could say that maybe one of the ingredients of the novel right from the very beginning is that it spotlights extremely ordinary even lowly people get to be the protagonists. I think that is a difference. That is, this is not true in Homer. This is not really true in Shakespeare. In Shakespeare, you have a whole bunch of side characters that are ordinary and lowly, but rarely do we get a protagonist that is just a common person. I love that answer a lot. Sancho Panza, you know, his, would you say, alter ego, his, his weird best friend, is equally lowly. You know, so I mean, he meets maybe throughout the novel some higher up people, yeah, but it's mostly a genre of and for normal people. I think that's really important. He definitely finds the extraordinary out of the ordinary, which I think we see in a lot of novels and movies today, where it's like a normal person's life, but then we're finding the interesting aspects of that that mm. are interesting to readers or viewers or whoever's looking at the movie or reading the book boring in some parts not really but just like his ordinary life and then he has these aspects of his life that are extraordinary even if it's from his own imagination so it starts with a preface ostensibly this is cervantes talking but the narrator becomes a kind of character and you know has a, quite a distinct personality he's kind of self-denigrating a little bit too humble maybe tells us that he had a problem starting this book why start a novel this way yeah, so I thought that the introduction was super interesting because it kind of had these two contradictory aspects where it kind of felt like one of those moments where a friend comes up to you and they're like, I have this like piece of art that I want to show you, but it's really bad. Like, it's just, you know, it's a rough draft. Like, don't judge it, but it secretly is really good. But I just want you to have very low expectations. But then there was this part where he says, and because I am by nature shy and careless about hunting for authors to say what I myself can say without them, there was just kind of like these moments where he was almost being satirical, almost making fun of past texts that mm. put forth these authors as like, you know, these well-known poets at the beginning and like have all these annotations. And he's like, I don't really need that, but I'm going to act like it's like a fault that I don't need that. And he asks his friend, what do I, what do I do about this? And the friend's like, oh, just make them all up. Just lie. Yeah. You know, you can just insert whatever thing that you want. And he announces, he says, the narrator says, or the author, it's hard to know what to call him, says, um, I thought this was extremely good advice. 
I listened to what my friend said, and his observations made such an impression on me without attempting to question them, I had admitted their soundness. And out of them, I determined to make this preface. So, and then later in the text, in certain chapters, we see him inserting, just like his friend told him to, uh, just put in some Latin phrases, because that's what authors do. You know, it'll make you look smart and fancy. So we're getting the impression, wait, is this narrator to be trusted? And I'm telling you, and by the way, we should talk about the strange hybrid claims that this book makes about being fiction and nonfiction. This is apparently a true story that he found out about, you know, in some weird manuscript. Why is he telling us that he's a liar? Isn't that weird? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, that's kind of a theme. I don't want to like skip ahead too much, but like that's kind of a theme throughout the book where the part where they're burning his books and they're like, oh, this is the cause of all his madness. This is why he's, you know, doing all these crazy things, blaming books. And then throughout as well, like at the part where he finds the rest of the story and it's like from an Arabic writer or something. And he's like, well, they tend to lie anyway. So he kind of just like discounts authors throughout (laughs) the whole book. Books are the subject of almost nothing but mockery and disdain and fear even. This section where he's talking about adding like these poets for the credibility of their names, there's such a weight on the importance of names in this story. It connects with the the Mm. idea that Don Quixote himself has with this idea of I need to rename things so that people think I'm prestigious and significant. And it's totally fake. But he has this idea, like if I rename this woman, if I tell her to take the name Donna, you know, in front of her name, then that will make her more elegant, more, it just kind of elevates her. And it says in the preface, I really like this part where I think it was the friend said, if it answers no other purpose, this long catalog of authors will serve to give a surprising look of authority to your book. Like it does nothing else. But it's just kind of this idea of we do this all the time where we we look at things and we're like, oh, that has a fancy name. So it's more prestigious when it really doesn't have any merit on what a person actually is. Don Quixote has to rename himself. His name isn't Don Quixote. It's um, Quijana. Yeah. Um, Dulcinea isn't named Dulcinea. He sees this beautiful woman and says, oh, she needs a new name because her name is maybe too, too plain or not fancy enough. So to be beloved by a knight like me, she deserves a better name. Interestingly, I think Sancho Panza doesn't get a new name, which is, I think, a lovely little detail, yeah? I love what you're both saying, Riley, like jumping ahead a little bit, um, that it does mirror the protagonist, that the author himself has delusion, maybe delusions of grandeur or um, is being ambitious in a way that involves deceit. Or maybe I won't use the word deceit, maybe I'll use the imagination. Uh, this this character so the narrator says this character is well known and i'm just gathering up all of the tales about him and putting them in this book he's a true person he lived that's what the narrator tells us and yeah i found this arab manuscript and i had this person kind of translate it for me so we're being told that this is kind of nonfiction. we're also being hinted at that he has had to kind of patch in some holes add some details so we wonder well how much of this is fiction how much of this is nonfiction? is there something about fiction that is inherently dishonest uh, and you can we can ask ourselves we can jump ahead and go to that scene if you want where they're burning all those books let, let me ask two questions at the same time why does this book describe books as something that are very frightening dangerous silly uh, and need to be destroyed in a way maybe he the author is trying to have people question everything they read even if it's fiction or non-fiction it kind of reminds me of today we're seeing things that are 
put to us as real. Um, we see like you know, crazy conspiracy theories, crazy things like that, that are believable in a way, but you need to question everything. So maybe that's what he's saying in a way, like this is a real story, but as you're seeing, I'm piecing things together. It might be not as real as you would maybe assume if you had just read it. That's, that's a great comment. You know, all of those uh, chivalric romances that you've read, all those folk tales that you know, you know, maybe don't be so gullible, you know, when you read them. Yeah, I just think that it's so interesting how everything in the prologue is mirrored in the book. There's this struggle with what's reality, what's not in the prologue mm-hmm. when he's like, oh, it's fiction, it's history. Which one is it? You don't know. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the book, you know, that's Don Quixote's entire struggle. So he can't parse reality from what's in his head. And, you know, what really is the difference to him? The windmill really is like this yeah. giant that he needs to take down. And he has just convinced himself so much. And you know, when it talks about the danger of books, it talks about, I think it's hinting at this idea of like, you can get so lost in that world that you start to be disappointed with your own world and you want to portray things in this different light. But I think that Don Quixote, he encounters this in a very dangerous way because he sees knights as this thing that he wants to be, but he doesn't keep his reason when he wants to be a knight. He can't see things clearly. And he's so caught up in, these are the rules of this book. This, these are the guidelines I need to follow that he loses like the passion, the humanity underneath it. And so he's doing all these crazy things and he's not even speaking normally. He's speaking in this weird way that shows you that his common sense has been taken out of the equation and people can't even understand him. Yeah. And so he just kind of has this tangle with reality and what's not real that he he hasn't let his own reason enter into that equation. He's an old man, loves books, does nothing really but read books. In chapter one, it says, in short, he became so absorbed in his books that he spent his nights from sunset to sunrise and his days from dawn to dark pouring over them. And what with little sleep and much reading, his brains got so dry that he lost his wits. His fancy grew full of what he used to read about in his books, enchantments, quarrels, battles, challenges, wounds, wooings, loves, agonies, and all sorts of impossible nonsense. And so it possessed his mind that the whole fabric of invention and fancy he read of was true, that to him no history in the world had more reality in it. So he says, I I want to become one of these knights. He rechristens himself. I love your comment about conspiracy theories, Riley. Humans, you know, one of the ongoing questions of this course is, what is a human? Humans are sadly, well, I was about to use the word gullible, but we want answers. We're curious. Maybe that's a better, more positive spin. We're very curious. We want explanations. You know, we want explanations. We don't like uncertainty. We prefer answers to non-answers, even if those answers are ridiculous. Are books dangerous? Do books feed this kind of negative aspect of our nature where we confuse the boundaries of reality and imagination too easily. What is the danger of books? I think that part of the danger is that Don Quixote doesn't really have his own personality without Mm. this knighthood identity. Even when he is a knight, he is talking to like these strangers on the road and he's like telling these stories, but they're not his stories. He's just inserting his name into these other stories of knights because he can't, he doesn't have his own identity. And so he's just been completely consumed by this book. And 
I think that that's where where his real danger is. He's too empty of a vessel, and these novels have filled him. You're absolutely right. He's like, well, I'm, I have to be knighted. And according to that novel that I read, the procedure of being knighted is that I have to be, you know, I can't wear white or something about there's a certain dress code, according to these books that he always follows. And Don Quixote says, I will not whine. I will not grumble. I will not complain. And Sancho Panza says, okay, well, I'm going to complain about more or less everything. Um, and then Sancho Panza says, unless, unless he's such a sweet, sweet person, you know, so such, such a sweet friend. I'm going to complain about everything unless in those books about chivalric knights, it says that the squires shouldn't whine. And Don Quixote says, no, I don't remember any such rule. <laughs> right? Complain on, you know? So you're right. He, he's too, yeah, he's too empty of a vessel and just takes all of these stories on as a template. So perhaps if you approach these books with a stronger sense of self and a stronger identity, this might not happen to you. I want to end our chat, you know, in a while here, asking ourselves if what happens to Don Quixote is actually really bad. Maybe it's good what happens to him. So I don't want it to seem like I think he is making huge mistakes. We might be being taught that the way he's living is good way to live. We'll see. Well, the one thing I was thinking is just that it is a little scary that he takes on this persona so greatly like in a way it could be you could think oh that's kind of cool he makes his own adventures out of nothing like wow great for this older guy to find these cool adventures on his own but he does get a little violent and a little scary to the people around him that's so true everyone around him to live and like believe the same way that he does Mm -hmm. for example when there's the boy that is like a servant and his master is beating him and hasn't paid him. Yes. You know, he has this whole dialogue and then the end he's like, okay, well, because I'm a knight and you swore to me that you're going to pay him, then you go off and pay him. And obviously he doesn't pay him and he beats the boy even worse. So in that way, it's like, he's trying to be this hero. And in a way he could have saved that kid, but because he has these crazy fantasies, he just, you know, it didn't actually end up helping. He always makes things worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're absolutely right. He's, he's riding around on his horse. She's named Rosanante, right? Chapter four, seeing what was going on. Don, so, so wait, I'm not. Uh, yeah. So he, he comes upon this man flogging a servant mm-hmm. quite badly. Right. And the servant, the youth is saying things like, I won't do it again, mastermind. I won't do it again. And then the text says this, seeing what was going on, Don Quixote said in an angry voice, discourteous knight, it ill becomes you. I love Brooklyn, your comment about he's adopted this way too fancy way of talking. It ill becomes you to assail one who cannot defend himself. Mount your steed and take your lance, and I will make you know that you are behaving as a coward. And they look at him strangely as they would, you know, and he more or less tries to command this man to stop flogging this youth. And says, if I come back and see you guys and see you this happening again, you know, you will know my full wrath and leaves. And of course, what happens when he leaves? The youth gets an even worse flogging, you know, so he always, and this happens again and again and again. Later on, he comes on that caravan of, what is it, knights or friars and charges at them, you know, and they're not really doing anything wrong and uh, kind of scatters them and terrifies them. Do his delusions make him a better person? I guess we don't really hear a lot about how he was before he went mad, but it seems that he's very loved and that, I mean, he has all these great friends that come and see him and whatnot, but it seems like he almost has the same ideals in a way, as far as like being a good person. 
but he's just taken it to this like night level. Like, I think he was probably already like a good person, but he just has a different spin on it in a way that he's like a knight. So I don't know if it necessarily makes him a better person. I was going to say it makes him more courteous and it makes him more courageous and it makes him more self-sacrificing, but does it make the world a better place? Yeah, he's self-sacrificing in ways, in times that he doesn't, there's like really no need for him to be like, nothing's happening. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the one aspect that I noticed throughout the excerpts that we read is that he really sees people without class. Like he is able to see everybody in this, like, you can be a knight, you can be a lady, you can be like you can be above your maybe normal social station like sancho he's like you're gonna be the ruler of a kingdom you're just like a work laborer in my town but you can do that and like when he enters that in these women i kind of get the sense that they're not maybe the most like classy women but he's like i want you because you've met me to take on the name of donna before your name and you know elevate yourself like you can be noble you can be yes he just sees everybody in this way, and I really loved that. I think they're prostitutes hanging out. I think that we get yeah. strong hints that they're prostitutes hanging out this inn, and he says, no, I will address you using these noble titles, and they giggle at him and laugh and kind of mock him. But I think you're onto something, Brooklyn. I think it's he sees the world for what it could be, and he sees each human for what he or she could be. Sancho Panza is this poor, more or less nobody. He says, follow me. You will be the ruler of an island. You know, you will be the governor of your own island, your own kingdom. Yeah, so we, we, we skipped over some wonderful details like his helmet, his paste, his, his like kind of more or less cardboard pasted helmet that he wears. And then he gets a, a barber's dish that he wears like a. Um, okay, so let's. I thought that was so funny. Say that again. And he was at the inn and he wouldn't take it off. <laughs> I, I think he couldn't take it off. <laughs> I think it was stuck. So he's like disrobed of all of his armor, quote unquote armor. And they try to like rip this helmet off, but it's stuck. So he's sitting around the fire <laughs> with this yeah. helmet. And he can't see so, and he can't like drink. So they have to feed him through. It's so funny. <laughs> when I was looking for the part when he met Sancho, there was this one quote that goes with what I was saying. That I think it's just really good for giving Tom Quixote a good spin. He says, um, when he's talking to Sancho, but do not undervalue thyself so much as to come to be content with anything less than being a governor of a province. Mm. I just like that. Do not undervalue yourself. That is so great. Uh, th- was that in chapter seven? That is, yeah, chapter seven, right at the end. Why does Sancho Panza follow him? That's the first question. Does Sancho Panza believe the promises made by Don Quixote? to introduce? And so I want answers to that, but while you're thinking... Let me introduce this character, give a little color here. Meanwhile, so this is in chapter seven. Meanwhile, Don Quixote worked upon a farm laborer, a neighbor of his, an honest man, if indeed that title can be given to him who is poor. It's a very strange authorial insertion there. But with very little wit in his pate. In a word, he so talked him over and with such persuasions and promises that the poor clown made up his mind to sally forth with him and serve him as esquire. Don Quixote, among other things, told him he ought to be ready to go with him gladly because any moment an adventure might occur that might win an island in the twinkling of an eye and leave him governor of it. On these and the like promises, Sancho Panza, for so the laborer was called, left his wife and children and engaged himself as Esquire to his neighbor. Do you get the sense from this and through the subsequent conversations that Sancho Panza is fully persuaded that he will win his own island? 
Why does Sancho Panza follow him? What does he uh, see in this crazy old man? There was this quote that kind of answers that question directly. The narrator said, he never gave a thought to any of the promises his master had made him, nor did he rate it as hardship, but rather as recreation, going in quest of adventures. And I think that Sancho never thinks he's going to win an island or anything, but he is an opportunist and he's mm. maybe not the most honorable person. He recognizes that there's going to be opportunities where he could earn some money. Like we see that with the friar or monk, Don Quixote, like fights him and knocks him down. And then Sancho runs in and he's like, I'm going to rob him now because right. part of the rules, like we won. <laughs> And he doesn't actually believe that any of the illusions that Don Quixote says, but he sees an opportunity. He's like, I'm going to take advantage of this. <laughs> the, the only way for Sancho Panza is up. He's already poor. He already has nothing. He might as well take his chances with this crazy old man and see what happens. He can't get worse off than he already is. Yeah, I mean, I really liked what you said, Brooklyn, and I hadn't really thought about how he did kind of elevate everyone, at least in the way that he talked about them. And when Sancho Panza, when he is promising an, him an island, he's like, well, I'm not going to do it like most knights who wait until their friar is almost dead or whatever. Mm. Until they're almost dead, I'm going to give it to you when you're still young and you can have your whole family there and stuff. I think it is kind of infectious being around those types of people, even though Don Quixote was crazy. It's still like cool being around someone that's like, you can do all this stuff and we're going to do this together. And it's just infectious. You want to be around those types of people. I think you totally do. And I think we see this at the end, but let's not skip there yet. So this is at the very end of chapter seven. This is a little bit of banter between them. Uh, Sancho Panza says, in that case, if I should become a king by one of those miracles your worship speaks of, even Juana Gutierrez, my old woman, would come to be queen? Don Quixote responds, well, who doubts it? <laughs> I doubt it, replied Sancho Panza, because for my part, I am persuaded that though God should shower down kingdoms upon earth, not one of them would fit the head of Mary Gutierrez. Let me tell you, senor, she is not worth two maravedes for a queen. Countess will fit her, and that only with God's help. <laughs> so he's insulting his own wife, but he's an intense realist, Sancho Panza is, an intense realist. You know, even in the face of all of these miraculous promises, he's like, no. There's no way that even in my wildest fantasy, my wife could ever be a queen, you know, maybe a duchess. It's like his imagination is so limited. Okay, let's talk a little. So we skipped over that wonderful episode and maybe we don't need to return to it, but we skipped over that wonderful episode where they burn all his books and they even, they're like, well, he'll, he'll walk into the empty library. So they even build a wall over the door of his library and he's like, he wakes up from his stupor. He's walking back and forth noticing that something is off and they tell him that this magician has stealed his library and he totally believes it. So they're kind of fueling his fantasy in a way. Um, I think that's interesting. So we're going to talk about these windmills. Maybe one way to get into them is to talk about the character. Of the, I mean, why is this book so famous? I mean, there are probably a hundred reasons, but certainly one of the reasons is that the pairing of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza is so brilliant they present such an odd yet perfect couple. I guess what I'm asking for us to do now is spend 30 seconds kind of describing each of them, describing their traits, their qualities, and why you think they interlock in such a lasting way. Yeah, I really like the pairing of Don Quixote and Sancho and just like the moments you get where they really are, like one is in this world where he's like, I need to follow at to the letter everything about knighthood 
And hmm. Sancho's like, I'm going to be realistic. Guess what? I'm hungry right now. And Don Quixote's like, well, night's fast, so I'm not going to eat. And this happens a lot where, you know, the one we talked about earlier as well, where Sancho's like, I'm going to complain if I get hurt. Yeah. I'm going to whine. And Don Quixote's like, knights don't whine. Yeah. And just kind of see this juxtaposition of like just very much humanity with this um, illusion. And it kind of just plays back and forth. And I really like that. I think they do become kind of one person. They kind of encapsulate every possible aspect of, of, of a human. Don Quixote is tall and thin. Sancho Panza is short and fat. So even in their physicality, they're kind of like, they, they encapsulate the spectrum. Dreamer versus realist, stoic versus complainer, abstainer versus indulger. Um, Don Quixote is always thinking of the future, like the, the quest that is about to come. And Sancho Panza is always thinking of my belly is empty now, you know, it's empty right now, or there's some gold I could take right now, you know, so it's like future versus present, delayed gratification versus instant gratification. I think Don Quixote is remarkably honorable. This is another of his virtues. Like he, he has a code of honor, you know, that he is extremely loyal to. Sancho Panza doesn't, you know, any rule will go out the window to meet an immediate, you know, gain or profit. Sancho Panza is very timid. Don Quixote is very bold. So they're kind of opposites. And yet they, they, they grow fond of each other, you know? So they're opposites that attract. That's, this is how I read them as kind of one person, as a kind of, I don't want to say symbol or emblem because they become so three-dimensional and so real, but two of them can, can encapsulate what one human can be on a kind of daily basis. I was just thinking, now that we're talking about this, like Cervantes was really a genius to write them like this because I think people are automatically drawn to that because you kind of have the two extremes and extremes are interesting. And even today, like in movies, books, I feel like there's always those two characters. Now there's like the main person that's like a hero and then their best friend that's kind of like a jokester. So I feel like people have definitely patterned further like movies and books off of this from Cervantes work. I mean, you can think of um, Sherlock Holmes and Watson kind of opposites in a way mm-hmm. any buddy cop movie as a result is a direct ancestor of don quixote like, the, Japan, like captain hook and smee that's came precisely to precisely i mean disney loves this trope you'll get the protagonist and they always have some weird funny sidekick you know you can think of simba and i guess there's two funny sidekicks but that warthog what's his name again Tim- it's very Tim- sancho Tumba. yeah that's right yeah. he's very <laughs> sancho panza-esque you know Mm-hmm. Um, Akuna Matata. That's that's that must be. They must have been reading this book while while making that movie. You know, so it's just it, it, it. This book has spread its DNA everywhere. That's a great comment. He's invented. I don't think there is a duo quite like this in literature before, mm-hmm. and he's invented this this wonderful lasting trope. Sends a message to us that we we can't be either one alone. We can't take mm. this seriously. We won't get any fulfillment out of life if we live the way Don Quixote does, where he's just following everything to the letter. But we also do need some sort of vision as well. You know, Sancho Ponzo, he his life becomes so much better through meeting Don Quixote because he's able to see himself as valued more. He's able to he's able to kind of get this sort of visionary spark a little bit. Like this is what the world could be. Exactly. Let's talk about the windmills and then let's go to the ending. I mean, this is rightly famous. This is one of the most famous pieces of literature really ever. 
um, people who have never read this book or even really heard of it kind of vaguely know that there's this book about a man who charged with a lance at a windmill. Um, so this is chapter eight. I, I'll try not to chew up too much time with reading, but I think it's important to get some of these words out into the air. At this point, they came in sight of 30 or 40 windmills. And as soon as Don Quixote saw them, he said to his squire, fortune is arranging matters for us better than we could have shaped our desires ourselves. For look there, friend Sancho Panza, where 30 or more monstrous giants present themselves all of whom I mean to engage in battle and slay. <laughs> One old man, well, I'll just take on 30 giants. I intend to engage them in battle and slay. It's like, he just is so delusional. And with whose spoils we shall begin to make our fortunes, for this is righteous warfare, warfare, and it is God's good service to sweep so evil a breed from off the face of the earth. What giants, said Sancho Panza. So even his retorts are blunt and to the point, you know. There's no flattery in Sancho Panza. That's another thing that we love about him, isn't it? What giants? Those thou seest there, answered his master with the long arms, and some have them nearly two leagues long. You can hear the fatigue in Sancho Panza's voice. I think, look, your worship, what you see there are not giants, but windmills, and what seem to be their arms are the sails that turned by the wind make the millstone go. It is easy to see, replied Don Quixote, that thou art not used to this business of adventures. Those are giants. And if thou art afraid, away with thee out of this and betake thyself to prayer where I, while I engage them in fierce, unequal combat. He charges the windmills. We all know what happens. One of them kind of picks him up and then drops him. And then he gets extremely battered. This is the moment in which after this, Don Quixote says, I will make no complaint of the pain because knight errants are not permitted to complain of any wound. Sancho says, well, I'm going to complain a lot. This, other, this also happens with the friars. You can hear the exasperation in the voice of Sancho Panza. They're not, they're not evil people. That, that woman has not been kidnapped, you know, it's totally exasperated. So there's always this dreamer rushing forward bravely into some quest, some visionary quest, and there's always a realist saying, no, stop, it's not that, back and forth, back and forth. Let's go to the end. We're only reading a few excerpts, which is very sad. It's an enormously long book. Basically, what we're missing is many wonderful adventures and many more wonderful scenes of an ex extremely funny and illuminating banter between the two. I compared it to a book slash movie that most people know, Lord of the Rings. You know, by the time you get to the end here, you've gone. You you. It's taken you a month to read this book, so you feel like you've gone on all these adventures with the characters, and you feel very sad at the prospect of Don Quixote dying, and with the prospect of them separating. It's very emotional. Don Quixote suddenly regains his sanity. My reason is now free and clear, rid of the dark shadows of ignorance that my unhappy constant study of those detestable books of chivalry cast over it. Now I see through their absurdities and deceptions. And it only grieves me that this destruction of my illusions has come so late. How do people respond to this? Well, they try to kind of get him back into it. They're like, no, it still exists. But... I think that he's not actually telling the truth here when he says that he's let go of it. I think he's finally found how to really embody those true characteristics of knighthood that he's been missing this whole time. Mm. You know, this entire story, he's like, I am doing this because I'm just walking through the actions. I'm, I'm not really embodying this emotionally. But at the end, you see that he he gets it. He gets to be this honorable man. He keeps all of his promises. You know, in his will reading, he's like, Sancho, like, here is all of this stuff because I promised you that and I, yeah. you, you deserve it. And he kind of gets the 
personality traits that he was missing the entire time of knighthood. He gets that at the end when he lets go of all the strict guidelines of it. Yeah, I think his family kind of wants him to be back to Don Quixote because maybe he was happier when he was Don Quixote. I don't really know, but, you know, he's on his deathbed. He's going to die. They're like, oh, we don't want you to go back to when you were maybe unhappier or less fulfilled Mm -hmm. and they want him to, you know, go out of life happy and feeling fulfilled. And maybe that's when they actually saw him the happiest was when he was Don Quixote. We need some vision of possible nobility to make us who we truly are and could be, even if that vision is so absurdly ambitious, it's impossible to achieve. And Brooklyn, I like what you say. He's been pretending to live under this code of conduct. But then we realize, well, pretending to be chivalrous and noble and brave means that you'll behave chivalrous and nobly and bravely. So is there a difference between pretended courage and courage or pretended nobility and nobility? If you pretend for long enough, suddenly you are those very things that you were just pretending to be. I don't want to say fake it till you make it. That's become a kind of annoying bumper sticker, but it's become an annoying bumper sticker because there is some truth to it, isn't there? You know, if I want certain traits, there's only one way to get them. Start, even if I have to like fake it, you know, start behaving that way. And by their fruits, you shall know them. You know, eventually you will be that person. He has this inheritance to bestow upon Sancho Panza, and that's real. That's not fake. There was a quote at the end when he's talking to Sancho that I really liked, and it made me kind of sad, but also made me kind of feel like he was talking to me. And it says, Forgive me, my friend, that I led thee to seem as mad as myself, making thee fall into the same error I myself fell into, that there were and still are knights errant in the world. And I kind of feel like that's the narrator speaking to us too. He's like, you know, in the story, I might have kind of tricked you too into seeing at the end, Don Quixote, maybe he is a knight errant. Uh, that's great. It's, it, it mirrors precisely what Don Quixote says to Sancho Pons at the beginning. Don't think so lowly of yourself that you consider it impossible to become this governor of this island. I mean, who knows? You know, who knows? If you assume that you couldn't become a governor of an island, you, of course, never would. Probably, if you assume that you could, you won't, but only probably, right? Not certainly. The only way to achieve this dream is to pursue it. The only way to achieve this dream is to pursue it. And here at the end, I'm sorry that I've I've convinced you that there are knight errants in the world. It's like, that's a good thing. Why is he apologizing? He's convinced us to have hope, to see the good in people, to see the potential of everyone, to see nobility in unexpected places. This is an immense boon and a blessing. So no wonder that when he says, I am no longer Don Quixote of La Mancha, I am who I always was, Alonso Quijano. Immediately he's responded by these people uh, around him on his deathbed. They say, what, Senor Don Quixote, now that we have intelligence, of the lady Dulcinea being disenchanted. Now you are taking this line, right? So they even perpetuate like Dulcinea is Dulcinea. You are, they, they address him not as Alonso Quijano, but as Don Quixote. And they say, be rational, which is wonderfully ironic, you know, because he has been insane this whole time, but now they're, they're insisting that this uh, lunacy is rational. Be rational and let's have no more nonsense. You are Don Quixote, you know? Why do, why do the other, I mean, maybe we've already answered this question. 
why do the other people around him need? So, I mean, Riley, you said they want him to be happy. So they kind of perpetuate this fantasy, but they're doing it for their own sakes as well. Right. I mean, why, why do they need to be in the presence of someone who has these crazy dreams? I mean, one thing I was thinking, and maybe this doesn't answer your question outright, but I was just thinking about what we were talking about at the beginning with the books and how books can, you know, be disastrous for us and lead us down these bad paths. I feel like at least what we're talking about right now kind of shows that books can actually educate us and books can take us out of where we are. You know, we learn about different cultures. We learn about different places that we would have never experienced. So in a way, I think they saw Don Quixote as not learned, I guess, but he knew a lot. He knew a lot about different places and people and hearing about his adventures that he, you know, thought were happening and hearing about what he thought he was made them, I don't know, it kind of elevated them in a way they thought it was interesting. Even if they thought he was crazy, they thought the stories were interesting and they found, I don't know, maybe a lot of adventure and interest in what he was saying and what he believed. The reason that they want this is because that they realize it's kind of like what we go back, what we were talking about earlier. Don Quixote is somebody who he's a dreamer. He sees things greater than they actually are. And we need people to see us as larger and greater so that we can see that it's possible for ourselves to be like that. We need people around us like that. So even though they're doing this for him, they're also doing it for themselves. They realize like we do need knights errant. We do need people who are larger than life and show us that we can be larger than life. How ambitious should we be? What another version of this question is, what is the difference between ambition and delusion? You know, I have kids and sometimes, uh, you know, we ask them that, that cliche question, what do you want to be? And of course they say, oh, astronaut, president, you know, doctor, et cetera. Do you think I could go to Mars one day? It was like, what am I going to say? No, you could never be the president. I could, there's only one right answer to that question. Do you think I could be the president? There's only one right answer to that question. Of course you could. Of course you could. Um, when I think about my own life, like, you know, in, in my other uh, day job as poet, I try to write poems. How good could my poems get? Could I write a poem that lasts forever? <laughs> and I suddenly feel like Don Quixote chasing windmills. You know what I mean? Could I write a poem that is so good it lasts forever? Well, I think maybe the only way to actually end up doing that is to work under the assumption that, yes, I could. But then doesn't that cast me as a kind of crazy lunatic? This is a question. This, this is not a rhetorical question. This is a question I want answers to. How ambitious should we get? And how do we, how do we make sure that that ambition isn't delusional or maybe some delusion is good? What are your thoughts about this? I think we sell ourselves short if we don't you know, believe that we can achieve our dreams or believe that we can achieve things that may seem crazy. Not to like, I'm not trying to like toot my own horn or anything, but that this past summer I was able to get an internship that honestly, like when I first saw it, I was, I was like, yeah, no way, but I'll apply. You know what I mean? Kind of like that side of sort of thinking. But then shortly after I start thinking, wait, I could totally do this. Like I could do this. I just need, you know, put in the extra work and stuff. But then from that moment on, I kind of had in my mind, I'm going to get this internship and I ended up getting it. I don't know, you know, I think a big part of it was because I had the vision, even if it seemed nuts, I had the vision that, okay, I can do this. Like this is totally possible. And I really do credit that to like being able to get it. So from now on, I'm like, I really need to not so short because a lot of things that maybe you don't think are possible can be possible. 
And is there an upper limit to that? I mean, maybe there's no upper limit. You know, who knows? I don't know. That's where we come back to the importance of this pairing of Don Quixote and Sancho Panzo, that we need to take this visionary aspect of Don Quixote and tether it to reality with like Sancho, like we can't be so visionary that we Mm -hmm. lose touch with real people that they can't understand us, that they can't see things in our same realm where we are not seeing things accurately. But it's so important that we are able to have both have the vision and also have a voice that says those aren't giants, but it's okay because there's other things that can be as great as you imagine. You just need to have that balance. Or to be able to go in and out to inhabit Don Quixote for a moment. And then when you, when you fall, when you get bruised, so you you rush at your goal, you're going to get bruised. You know, if your goal is to slay 40 giants or to write a lasting poem or to get some insanely ambitious internship, as soon as you start rushing at that goal, you're going to get bruised. You're going to notice all of the ways in which you're not ready for that yet. So you want to rush at the goal. So you want to inhabit Don Quixote, but then as soon as you get bruised, you, I think maybe you need to turn on the Sancho Panza f- switch in your brain and say, why did I get bruised? What was it about my preparation that wasn't sufficient? Or how can I make my next pass at this goal better? Um, and then, and then immediately when you're ready to rush at the windmills again, turn off Sancho Panza. And don't listen to the voice saying, those aren't giants. Because if you listen to that voice too much, you'll just hold yourself back. And we need to, be, we need to believe that we're living in a world where knights errant exist, you know, and you could be one of them. You, and your wife could be a queen, you know, and you could own an, or maybe a duchess. And you can own an island, you know what I mean? And you can own your own island. It's a, it's a very fine balancing act you know, to be able to go back and forth. But Brooklyn, I think you're right. We need both. One without the other isn't complete. Mm-hmm. I just love this idea that you're saying. I guess that's not really a very helpful comment, but I hadn't thought about that with like the two, yeah, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, just like how you can apply that to your life. Like, I love that. I had not thought of that. And so I just love hearing these ideas. And I feel like with these books and the way that we're talking about the books, I've never read books like that. That's not a very helpful comment, but I'm no, it's good. a moment of enlightenment. <laughs> I think being able to hear or watch a realization in real time is very good, you know, and that's one of the reasons why we were doing this, you know, in dialogues as opposed to monologues. But I just love that Don Quixote works with what he's got. He makes his helmet out of like these scraps, his horse. How do you say the horse's name? I think it's Rosinante. Rosinante. I Googled what that meant because I was, I was like, that's a weird name. And it literally means laborer or lowly horse like that's what that word means and he's like riding around he's like i'm a knight and i've got this like you know scrappy old horse but i believe it so much and i'm not going to be hindered by these constraints of things that we would often say oh i don't have a good enough horse i can't be a knight i don't have exactly. a i can't be a knight he's like i'm gonna make a helmet it's not gonna be great but i'm gonna make it <laughs> Exactly. Right. So we start from where we are. And if we, we like, we don't have to wait for other things to happen. Like I'll start, I, I'll wait to start till I get a horse, a real horse or a real helmet. No, no, no. You can start now. There was no one more lowly than him. And he just started and yeah, look at what happened. Thank you both so much. Thanks. See you on Monday morning. See ya. Bye.
Today's poem of the day is by the Serbian-American poet Dejan Stojanovic. I hope I'm pronouncing that something close to correct. It's a beautiful poem about Cervantes' novel, and it's called simply Don Quixote. We dream and fight with demons real and imagined. We only live if we dream. We grow from our dreams, from our own La Mancha. Don Quixote is not an imaginary person. He is as real as Alexander the Great, his Dulcinea as real as Cleopatra. His windmills are as real as the Library of Alexandria, as real as scores of languages dead and forgotten, as real as Attila or lost Constantinople. His windmills are lost Aya Sophia's. His battles had to be won by sleepy emperors too busy to wage them. We need Don Quixote and La Mancha. When the whole past is but a phantom, when many a city fell, the idea remained, stronger than any city, stronger than any empire. Quixote shines from Lorca and Picasso, from Dali and El Greco, from the gloomy view of Toledo. He was born before Cervantes. Those in Argentina, Mexico, and Peru, Colombia, and the Caribbean bear La Mancha and Quixote in their hearts, for he is an ultimate and overlooked Don Juan. Marquez was not born in Colombia. He was born in Macondo, and his Macondo is his La Mancha. Fuentes and Cortazar are from La Mancha too. Neruda had his first dream, first meeting with the moon and the sun in sunny La Mancha, hiding in his heart where he learned how to sing like a nightingale. Don Quixote is not just Don Quixote. La Mancha is not just geography. It is our personal territory, terra nostra. It is not important what happens where, where we fall or rise, what we conquer or lose, how big or small we are. All places come and go. History will be erased in the universal purgatory. Dreams are our only geography, our native land. That's it for now. Thanks to Brooklyn and Riley for some great comments. The next recording will be about the first hundred or so pages of Dickens' novel A Tale of Two Cities, which I'm excited about. In the meantime, keep reading, keep enjoying the readings. <laughs>